It's hard for me to talk about bread without talking about people. Like if I was just going to write a book with 60 recipes, I couldn't do it. To me, the experience of baking and the people who are baking are just as important as the recipes. And I find it, it's, it's motivational to read about people like this. This is the Sourdough Podcast, the show about the innovators, leaders, and creative trailblazers in the sourdough community and the stories behind the bread. On this episode, baker and author Daniel Leader joins me to talk about his new book, Living Bread. We discuss his early bread education through the Backdoor School of Baking and the founding of his bakery in 1983. He shares his thoughts and experiences gained from nearly 40 years of baking and through his friendships with bakers from around the world. And he tells us why he thinks we are just at the beginning of the local grain economy movement here in America and what it means for the future of artisan bread. I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all of you out there who have sent me a message this season so far. It has been really encouraging, and I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate uh, the time and energy you guys put into uh, just reaching out. And one message I received in particular that I wanted to share, it said, Hi, Mike, I just wanted to say I have just recently started listening to the Sourdough Podcast, and I have listened to all the episodes at least once, some of them more. I run a small sourdough bakery in Sweden, uh, an old baking house. It is really amazing to be able to live my dream. But I also struggle a lot with doing everything alone and working very long days and not having really anyone to share my ups and downs with. And listening to the podcast has not only made my company the past days in the bakery, but also given me so much energy and a feeling that I should just keep going and do my thing. So thank you for a great pod and looking forward to new episodes. And that came from B.R. Lota at Hoberg's Sourdough Bakery in Sweden. Thank you so much, B.R. You don't know how much it means to me that this little podcast I am producing out here in California is encouraging you across the globe and helping you to serve and feed your community in Sweden. I'm so grateful to be able to share these conversations with you all. My main goal continues to be simply to inspire you to go out and bake your best sourdough possible and share it with your community in the same way that my guests have inspired me. In addition to reaching out, one of the most helpful things you can do if you haven't done so already is to share the podcast and leave a review. If you want to see the Sourdough Podcast continue to grow and to continue to bring you inspiring stories from our amazing Sourdough community, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It really goes a long way and I'd be very grateful for your support. And once again, be sure to stay tuned after the episode for another new single from Weston Perry's debut EP, From the Attic. And now, my interview with Daniel Leader. My guest today is baker, educator, and author Daniel Leader, here to talk with me about his latest book, Living Bread, Tradition and Innovation in Artisan Bread Baking. After graduating from the Culinary Institute of America and working in some of New York's top kitchens, Dan left the restaurant world to learn about the art of baking. After traveling across France, Dan returned home and opened his bakery, Bread Alone, in 1983 in Boyceville, New York. An award-winning author, Dan has been writing and sharing his bread knowledge for over 25 years. Daniel, welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure as well. 
Daniel, uh, before we jump into the book, uh, do you think you could tell us um, a little bit about yourself and your bread journey? Yeah, it sort of started in college when I bought the Tassajara bread book. And uh, I used to bake uh, whole wheat bread in my in, at the University of Wisconsin when I was studying philosophy. And uh, all right, n- another worked, philosophy major. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I worked uh, as a dishwasher, and I got promoted to a breakfast cook. And uh, my uh, manager said to me, "You know, you're pretty good at this. You might want to consider going to culinary school." And uh, I just did it. I just so I went to the Culinary Institute of America. And then I started working in what I call uh, old school French restaurants in New York, meaning at that time, I generally was the only American cooking. So the the entire staff was French, except me. And and so it was a unique opportunity to work with people from all over France. And it was also a unique time in that... um, the restaurants closed for the month of August. Can, can you imagine in today's world, all wow. top restaurants closing for a month? <laughs> that's it's how they did it back then. Yeah, that's how they did it. So um, uh, luckily, um, I had August off, and my friends would all go back to France for a month, all my colleagues. And they would say, oh, come visit. And uh, I had colleagues that lived in Paris and Alsace and Normandy and Brittany and wow. the, in Auvergne and in the, the Mediterranean and the and the and and so I would travel all around France uh, visiting my colleagues and invariably it seemed that every stop would be uh, included would be a bakery visit. Come visit, come see a local boulangerie. We're, oh, we're going to go get some drink and wine at some place, and then we're going to go to the bakery. So, um, I just fell into this world of like little boulangeries and baking, and it just it kind of captivated me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I was in Paris, um, I started like knocking on the back door of bakeries to to get let in, and uh, I, I joked that. Um, at this point, I probably have a PhD in the backdoor school of baking, meaning that I've been to hundreds of bakeries, knocking at the back door in the middle of the I night yeah. and work with the bakers. And that's how I learned to be a baker. Amazing. I mean, that's a pretty great schedule for a, a, a 22-year-old. Have August off, just travel Europe, dropping in on, on restaurants. Um, I love that part of your book and uh, just reading about how you kind of just... I, you know, I guess the word I've I've learned through my interviews is stage. I don't know if that's the word they would use there or uh, stage. You, you know, just... I, I think I think in the bakery world it's called. Oh my God, someone's offering free, free labor. labor. <laughs> you know, like like I don't think it was that. I no one ever called it a bakery stage. Everybody was like, "Entrez, you would pay." You know, like, yeah. you know, it was just like, "Come on and help us." <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, great. That's 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 amazing. And uh, again, just congratulations on the book. I, I really really enjoyed reading it it's a beautiful book uh for me you know i I just kind of felt like i was taking a journey through europe's finest you know artisan bakeries you know i'm i'm out here in california i'm relatively new to to baking so i'm very you know i'm kind of more familiar with kind of the west coast and san francisco Mm. bay area so for me it was really great uh educational and tool and just like a cultural uh like almost like a, a bread tour for me, you know, through Europe of all these bakeries that I'm not as familiar with. But, um, you know, that's exactly what I, I, I love about 
this podcast that I get to share these great stories. And, and your book is just full of those uh, interviews and, and these um, uh, profiles of some of these, the most amazing bakers. Well, it, you know, to me, it, it's hard for me to talk about bread without talking about people. Like, yeah. you know, like, like if I was just going to write a book with 60 recipes, like I can't, I couldn't do it. Like I just couldn't, you know, like to me, the experience of baking and the people who are baking are just as important as the recipes. And I find it, it's, it's motivational to read about people like this. Yeah. It had that connection to the, to kind of the inspiration yeah. for where that recipe came from. Um, exactly. You know, there's a ton of great insights on like heirloom grains and artisanal flour. Just these are like all the all the the kind of the buzz topics that you know our our sourdough community is really just starting to mm-hmm. dig our teeth into. We're exploring and and learning more about our grain economy, local grain economies, and and uh, you know, I just bought my first flour mill um, mm. a while back, and so I was really happy to see that section on milling your own flour. Um, I've really been enjoying that recently. One of the things, since you, since you brought up flour, one of the things that I tried to do in the book was to look at the language of flour identification differently. So in this country, we tend to look at uh, brand labels. Okay, mm. so you've got King Arthur this, or you've got General Mills, or you know, even some of the 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 organic flour mills. Um, you know, um, uh, I think uh, is central milling. They call it Baker's Craft. You know, yes. mm-hmm. and in Europe, flour is identified by numbers. And I talk about the the identification number, and it has to do with the extraction levels. And they also look at flour very differently in terms of of some of the tests that they do, and in terms of the falling number or the Alvia graph, and the language of flour identification is more specific. Mm. And I think it's something that we can can move towards in this country where bakers actually are looking more carefully at the 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 testing that's done on flowers and that we're not so um, like oh I bake with artisan craft but, but we don't know that much about it. And yeah. so yeah I I tried to not you know flower science is dense and it's complicated. So I tried to open the, the door to that and also do it in a real way that, you know, I write the story of going through that wonderful mill in that miniature sphere, how mm-hmm. they test their flower every batch that comes in. And, and there's a lot to learn there. there is, yeah, and it's, it's a really great section. I found it really uh, helpful, especially I actually just started using um, or um, Central Millings ABC, the artisan breadcraft flour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm learning how to use it myself. Um, I've, you know, I've been messaging with other bakers in our community and, and kind of figuring out what they're, what, how they've used it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some people have mentioned that they have thrown in some, some higher protein flour. And so I'm just, you know, I'm, okay, why would they do that? Um, what's the advantage of doing that? And, I mean, what, one of the things I've been seeing, especially in this, if I could call new generation of Instagram baking, you yeah. know, like where people can share photos instantly with a zillion people. Um, it seems that the definition of good bread is being redefined in mm. that it, you know, it's very common now to see these large loaves with, you know, with these 
very large hole structures. Yeah. You know, they, there's, I, I think there's a, a Instagram site called hole proof baking and it's showing these loaves with this, these, these, this spider web of big gaps and nooks and crannies. Uh-huh. Um, and, and certainly that defines a certain type of bread. Maybe like an aesthetic. And, and I think, and I think there's a certain aesthetic, but I think that that is in some way influenced by the availability of very high gluten flour. Like you, saying that people are adding more because they're trying to get that aesthetic mm. but that aesthetic is just i would say one one language of good bread and i wouldn't want it to be the the i wouldn't want that that is the definition of good bread because there's so many different ways to look at it yeah well i, I, I going back to that section on, on the flour i i found that uh, enlightening in a way because i was using i've been using it for pizza I've noticed that it does work right. better for pizza in some instances, where it's not so great right. for certain recipes for sourdough I'll use. Right. Um, and, and you kind of broke that down and said, oh, it has this a lower uh, protein percentage, a different ash content than a different yep. brand. And so I, I, I yeah, I dug yeah. right into I mean, it's funny, uh, since you brought up pizza, you know, we've, we've been living in this world where, where, you know, like I will call this new generation of pizza makers, everybody wants to use doppio zero flour, double zero flour. And in Italy, double zero flour just has to refer to an extraction level. And you could have double zero flour with 10 different protein levels, you know. Uh-huh. So we've, we've kind of hooked on to, okay, doppio zero flour for pizza, but you can use doppio zero flour for Tuscan bread, or there's even Durham wheat flour with doppio zero. It has to do with the extraction level and not necessarily the protein level. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's a really great section. You kind of compare... Uh, all the different uh, categories or, or qualifications uh, of, of bread across Europe and, and uh, kind of really break it down for our American yeah. audience who, is, who in some ways is kind of just learning all of this as we, you know, uh, oh, for as sure. Go and there's, what's, what's great here is there's tremendous enthusiasm. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of uh, new to this Instagram world because it just hasn't been my thing. And with the book I've had to, I've had to reach into it and I'm just stunned. Yeah, at the, the 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 interest and the passion and the photographs and the, the 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 you know people okay making taking bread photos seven days in a row seven different <laughs> batches why did this turn out like this why yeah. did this turn out like that people are really really uh, oh, yeah. hungry for information yeah we just had uh, that's that's our community here on the podcast you know we just have people from all over. Uh, you know, diff- coming from all different kind of backgrounds. You know, we have the tech crowd and we have uh, more of the creative crowd and we have all this, they all kind of come together and, and sharing their knowledge and, and inspiration and, and stories. And, and that's kind of what the, the podcast is all that's about. Great. And Well, I'm um, excited by it all. Even as, an, even as a seasoned baker, I find it just like yeah. thrilling. Yeah. Well, and I was going to, you know, a lot of my audience is are relatively new. I'm saying like five, ten years max, you know, in a lot of cases. And a lot of my, you know, even my guests are kind of fall into that range. Mm. Um, whereas someone like you who has decades of experience um, can really share so much knowledge yeah. with us. Um, I, I do want to just say one thing about baking for 37 years. Okay. I would say that we're in the third phase or the third wave of artisan bread baking in America. You know, Steve Sullivan, Acme Bread, we opened the same month, the same year. And most of the bakers that opened with us are gone now. Either they've sold out 
or they've closed or, you know, they've changed. And uh, one thing that I caution bakers who call me for advice is don't be like stuck that I have to use a wood fired oven. I have to do everything by hand. I, you know, in order to have good bread, I have to hit these bullet points mm. because it's really hard work mm -hmm. and people burn out after eight, 10 years. So, mm. you know, really, you know, um, uh, embracing some of the tools of, of, of modern artisan bread baking can be very helpful. Yeah. Um, Dan, uh, could you tell us why this book is special to you and, and why did you want to write it in the first oh. place? Well, um, I think I wanted to write it in part because there is such enthusiasm now, number yeah. one. Uh, number two, um, I have had this unique opportunity to visit so many bakeries, and I really wanted to share the stories. I, I, I loved all these people who have been mm -hmm. so kind to me over the years, and it's almost like an homage to, to the opportunities that I've had. Mm -hmm. And I've also wanted to add um, information on sourdough, information on flour, um, information on, on traditions and new techniques and to tell the stories of the roots of some of this, this, uh, bread baking. And also, um, you know, the whole discussion of heritage grain mm. and grano antico in Italy, it's a little bit different than here. Um, and I, I, I in particular wanted to tell the story of this guy in Sicily and how he finds his wheat varieties and how he introduces them into the marketplace. Because one of the issues here is there's tremendous interest in, in bringing some of these older varieties or local grains. Mm -hmm. But when I spoke to people like um, Stephen Jones and the folks at Cornell, they're just beginning to figure out what varieties are right, you know, to plant and grow here. Yeah. So, it's we're I mean, I've been telling the people at the green market in New York City and when they talk about the local grain economy, I think that we are at the beginning of the beginning. And I'm gonna use an analogy that that I think is powerful. Whole Foods started, opened in nineteen eighty three, same year as bread alone, uh -huh. same year as Acme Bread. Okay. If anyone would have told me that some little health food store in Austin, Texas would grow to be one of the major supermarket influencers in the world, I would have said impossible. <laughs> and I think that this local grain economy, I think that I think that we are absolutely at the beginning of the beginning. And I think that five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, we're going to have um, so much more. Mm. We're going to have a lot more information. We're yeah. going to know more about what wheat varieties grow well. So I, I just think that, like we should embrace this mm. as that we're at the beginning of a movement. Then we're not in the middle of the movement. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, looking back into your book, you know, um, some of your first hands-on baking experience you talked about was um, you gained with uh, Basil Kamir. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you were saying, you know, at the time, the late 70s, he was kind of known for helping revive exclusively leaven-raised breads, which were as you say, um, on the brink of extinction in Paris yeah, at the time. Absolutely. And so we're, you know, we're talking about how that's, you know, you're saying this is the beginning of, of that movement here in, in the U S. Um, I, and I guess that kind of just, that line kind of surprised me because I'm like, wow, I, I would have thought, you know, uh, there's always been such a strong tradition no, no. of natural. It's interesting. In when, when I started going to Paris, 
I was using Patricia Wells' book, you know, The Food Lover's Guide to Paris. And she had written a bunch of articles about her favorite bakers. And, and I went to bakers back then who said they were using a Levant. It wasn't even a Levant. I mean, in today's, uh-huh. in today's world, you know, and, and, you know, Basel was really one of the first, uh, I remember going, I write in the book about visiting Pierre Poilin, that's Lionel's father, uh-huh. uh, and him showing me the Levant and the flour they were using in, you know, in the, in the late, uh, in the late seventies. And it's really, uh, it's really powerful how this, movement is like really digging in and so many people are want to know about sourdough mm-hmm. you get the sourdough library in belgium right now mm-hmm. you've got you got people like marco gobetti in italy who are analyzing the lactobacilli and and people are mapping the genome of sourdoughs i mean not that we have a lot of not that we have a lot of control of it as bakers we just can control time and temperature but it's amazing that people want this information it's amazing that it's available yeah, yeah, it's you know, but it's all about education, and I I know you're a big uh, you're an educator, obviously in writing your books. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of education going on at your bakeries. Uh, what's what's kind of been your experience in teaching your customers about sourdough naturally leavened breads? Well, that's been a journey. I mean, this is a different this is a different community than the West Coast. I mean, Steve Sullivan and I have had long conversations about the difference between the West Coast market and the East Coast market. Uh, I think the West Coast embraced uh, sourdough breads much quicker mm. than the East Coast. And certainly there was a tradition of San Francisco sourdough that may have helped. Um, but, you know, it's taken time for people to, to, to embrace it. And frankly, if I sold bread with, those, with the big holes that Instagram users use, <laughs> people wouldn't buy it. People, as a commercial baker, people want nooks and crannies but they don't want holes in their bread. So, so, you, so you're saying you think there's uh, even a, a distinction in, in that revival on the West Coast versus East Coast? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Because I, mean, I guess no- I've, I've, I've heard, you know, kind of these waves have happened in, and they even started, you know, in the 60s and 70s with kind of like, you know, the hippie movement and, and you know, you know, sticking it to the man and making your own bread yeah. and kind of, you know, the uh, home bakers and the... Um... Well, there, there was a baker named Baldwin Hill that started um, in the, I think it was the late 60s. Uh, and it was a guy, he was a, he was a doctor named Hein Lerner, and he felt that he could do more for people's health by baking whole wheat bread than being a doctor. And he started this Deezen Bakery um, in, in Phillipston, Massachusetts. And he was, he was the first that I knew of. Mm-hmm. And I visited him. The bakery's gone now, but I visited him uh, early, early before we opened Bread Alone. Yeah. And what do you, what would you say? I mean, what do you think is kind of the reason why people are kind of gaining this new interest all of a sudden, uh, maybe in the last you know ten, five to ten years? I think it's interesting because there's two there's two very strong currents happening. You've got the no gluten current. The no wheat current, uh-huh. and at the same time, you have this huge revival of people wanting to make simple um, uh, sourdough breads, uh, m- you know, made from certified organic flours. And that crowd does not talk anything about that other movement of no gluten, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so, I think it's really interesting that that there is such uh, excitement and interest in it 
And I also think there's a lot of truth in it mm. that, that, you know, people have been eating sourdough bread for thousands of years. Commercial yeast was invented in the late 1890s or 1880s. I'm somewhere there. So basically for most of human history, people were eating sourdough bread. Mm-hmm. Here we have 120 years of commercial yeast and, and we, we, we somehow bread has been demonized. Okay. And one of the things I feel really strongly about is that when we talk about um, artisan bread, meaning breads that are made from organic flour, uh, let's call it milled, milled sensibly, whether it's stone milling or roller milling, mm-hmm. uh, made without any additives, preservatives, chemicals, without any conditioners, without any wheat gluten, uh, made with sourdough starter, which is a probiotic, okay, fermented for a long time. I think it's really important that we as bakers say, this is a different kind of food mm-hmm. than the people who are demonizing wheat. And so like, like it's really a different kind of food and the same organic vegetables are different than commercial vegetables. So almost all your recipes, uh, Daniel, in the book were inspired by bakers and bakeries all over Europe. How did you decide what uh, recipes you wanted to include in this book? I can't imagine that process must have been easy. Um, actually, it wasn't that hard uh, because there's been so many bread books that have come out in the last 10 years. Okay. And I really wanted to include recipes and ideas that hadn't been written about. So when I would go to a baker and say, oh, can you, what, what would you, some of your favorites? If, if I felt it was a bread that's already been written about a good deal, I excluded it right away. Mm-hmm. So I tried to focus on things that I thought were new and different. Great. Yeah. No, it, it's, yeah, there's like over 60 recipes. You know, I was excited. The majority of them or the largest portion of them are sourdough recipes. So I think there's, yeah. be, there's so um, many. I do want to, I, I do want to say one thing about the sourdough recipes. You know, many bakers in Europe, sourdough bakers, use between uh, a half a gram and one gram of yeast per thousand grams of flour, even in their sourdough breads. Mm -hmm. So I I really struggled with, given the huge interest in sourdough in this country, if I was going to do that or not. So I in some of the recipes in the book, I do follow this practice of using, it's not 1%, it's 0.1%. Uh-huh. So it's one gram of yeast or a half a gram of yeast per thousand grams of flour. And I know that some people may feel that this is sacrilegious, but this <laughs> is what the bakers did. And I felt like I wanted to be true to the bakers. According to even the food laws in Europe, that's, you know, still qualified. Oh, totally. I mean, you can use, you can use up to two grams per kilo of flour in, in, in Europe um, and still call it sourdough bread to be kind of that. And even at that small, small percentage, you can see the benefit and it's, and it's, you know, it creates a little bit more stability, especially with long, like, like, especially in, in France, if they're making, uh, a baguette de, de tradition, it, they're able to hold that baguette in a cooler for 24 to 30 hours with more resiliency mm-hmm. than if it was exclusively sourdough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I, I would, I mean, I, of course, I'm not a scientist, but I, you know, in my experience, you know, if you're, that sourdough starter is so potent in, in these oh, yeah. most cases that it's not, you know, going to be, uh, 
you can't taste the difference. Yeah. You know, uh, sidelined at all by the, by yeah. the yeast. So, or the flavor is still going to be there and you're still going to get all those benefits from the, the sourdough culture. Um, we kind of talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but can you define good bread for us? And I know you have a section in your book where you kind of uh, talk about that. And, and how has that definition of good bread for you, Daniel, um, changed over the last 40 years mm. of your career? Um, uh, first of all, I would say there's some primary components to good bread. One is, for me, certified organic grains or gra grains that were completely untreated. Uh, the second, as I mentioned before, I'll call it sensible milling. Although there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of people that say that you should only use stone ground flour. The fact of the matter is, mm. in this country, it's very hard to find commercially um, uh, stone ground commercially produced stone ground flour. Um, so I'll call it uh, milled sensibly, meaning that it's not over milled. The third is uh, a natural fermentation. Um, um, either, even if it has a sponge or a, a pouliche, you know, a pouliche can be made with uh, one gram of yeast per thousand grams of flour. So it's, I'll still call that natural fermentation and or sourdough, mm -hmm. uh, no preservatives have any kind, let's say a fermentation of at least six to eight hours and, and baked in a hearth oven or baked in it. We're, we're, you know, we have this, this revolution of Dutch ovens. So I would say those are the components of good bread. And how it's changed is um, I think that this renewed interest in heritage grains and specialty grains and emmer and einkorn and, um, and Grano Antico and, you know, some of these heritage varieties that are coming out of France, mm. you know, Bordeaux Rouge or in, in, um, in, uh, in, in Kansas are growing this red Turkey, which was brought over by, uh, by, um, folks from the, uh, from the, from the East. Um, but having said all that, you know, when I, I had a long talk with Stephen Jones about this and he was saying, and same, same Stephen Jones and Mark Sorrell, and the folks at the Wheat Innovation Center in Kansas, and they're saying that just because it has this heritage doesn't mean it's any better. And Steve and, and, and Mark Sorrells are crossbreeding all the time. The guy that Giuseppe De Carlo that I write about in Sicily, mm. they're taking two old varieties and making a new variety and thinking that it's better. So it's not just because it's old, it's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I think I maybe got this from your book as well, is that, you know, in some of these cases, we've been doing this for generations and generations. And, and that applies to kind of the modern bread industry as well, where we were, we're taking these grains and we're using the ones that we, you know, the, the bread industry, the, the kind of globalized bread industry has been, has deemed as the best type of grain to make mm -hmm. this highly industrialized type of bread. Um, you know, it's got a very hard case, uh, you know, and, and you got to refine it and, and, and you're not using natural fermentation, but that makes these particular types of fast breads. But when you take those same grain and you try to make sourdough out of it or like a naturally leavened or, or organic loaf, it, it doesn't, it doesn't perform as well because it, it was never special. It was never created. It wasn't created to, mm -hmm. to, cre uh, to bake the same way yeah. as you would, um, a highly processed loaf. Um, and so I think that's, you know, part of this, you know, 
movement is getting back to the roots and getting to know where your your grain is coming from, who your miller is, and mm-hmm. and what kind of and, and and on that subject of millers, I think that's an area of you know when I say that, when I use the term beginning of the beginning, okay, so small mills have virtually disappeared in this country. I mean, mills like Central Milling uh, or Mark Nightingale's mill in Kansas or La Milanese in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can, you, and, and, on two hands, you could, you could pretty much identify all of the small to medium sized high quality mills in this country. And I think that you're going to see, uh, big companies open small mills, or, you know, if you think about how a big company might own a microbrewery, mm-hmm. I think that you're going to see the same phenomenon in, mm. in, in, uh, like, for example, I know Bay State Milling is looking at having a small milling division. One of the millers that um, I visited in France is looking to open a small mill in the Northeast here. So mm. I think that we're going to see as, as there's a renewed interest and renewed quantities of these local grains, you know, they don't want to sell these small grains to, you know, Conagra. You know, they're not going to know what to do with them. Yeah. So you're you're gonna you're gonna need the infrastructure of small mills to supply these special flowers. You know, if you look at Maine grains, that's a great example of a of a local regional mill that's really making an impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this all kind of has kind of goes back to this thought you have in the book about good bread, and you say, you know, today I believe that bread should be discussed with a similar consciousness and language similar to that used for wine. Um, you know, we're talking about. When we're, and that's what we're doing really in this uh, conversation and, and, and kind of all around, you know, Instagram and our, you know, our, our messages mm-hmm. with each other. So we're, we're talking about bread like wine. You know, we're mm-hmm. talking about where does the grain come from? Who is the miller? Um, and I think, you know, that's and really, what variety, you know, like, for example, at the Milanese, which is a, a one of the businesses that we do, do uh, one of the mills we do business with, um, they do not yet offer single variety flowers so meaning that you know like you can buy a pinot noir okay you know it's from pinot Mm. noir it's not a blended wine and as soon as they feel that there's enough consistency and there's enough stability in particular single varieties and it bakes well they're going to do it Mm -hmm. but they're not ready yet and you know at this point there's a lot of interest in it but if it doesn't bake well what good is it yeah yeah, but it all starts with you know changing the conversation and education. Exactly. That's kind of what the conversation is changing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Daniel, do you have a, a favorite sourdough recipe from the book? You know, you know, I have to say um, I'm a, a tremendous fan of traditional French pain au levain. But I met this amazing baker uh, named Arnt Abel in the book, oh, and doing research for the book, and he's northeast of Munich, and he does this bread called a Drescher Lab. And it's a very dense, the opposite of big holes. Uh, It's a rye, uh, it's a rye and spelt bread with a with a little bit of wheat flour, and uh, it's actually the bread that's cut on the third page of the book that you told. And he makes those breads in ten kilo loaves. Wow! And I'm I am a total fan of that bread. Amazing. Do you have a, a most popular sourdough at Bread Alone? 
uh, we make a lot of uh, Panelavan and uh, we make a lot of uh, Miche. You know, we've, we've been making a Miche for 37 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just a, a, another couple questions here and I'll let you go. Um, we've been talking a little bit about it, but, you know, what do you see the future of artisan bread and in particular naturally leavened breads in America? And, and do you think, you know, is it just a fad or, or do you think it's here to, to stay? And, and what role do you think education plays in that future? Well, I think education is huge. Um, I think uh, getting the medical community to embrace uh, the health aspects mm. of, of uh, whole grain bread, sourdough bread um, is really important because right now doctors, you go there, I don't feel good. And they say, oh, cut out wheat. You know, mm. so really getting nutritionists mm-hmm. and agronomists uh, to support, you know, what I'll call scientific truth rather than scientific hearsay mm. um, is is really important. Um, and then I think there needs to be a real change in consciousness on the supermarket level, yeah. meaning that supermarkets want to say you, you go to deliver bread. And they say, well, what's the shelf like? Like the, the whole idea is that they want a loaf of bread that's going to sit for, you know, five days, seven days in the shelf. And bread doesn't do that. Mm. You know, you wouldn't expect a, a piece of fish to sit mm. in, a, in ice for seven days in a supermarket. So I think there needs to be a real consciousness about buying fresh bread, eating it daily, um, having to be part of your everyday life. And... I think it's there's going to be many forces that will really help propel more uh, interest in, in having um, artisan bread available in supermarkets, not just in specialty stores. Yeah, and, and it's in artisan bread is more than just, and I've seen this a lot in, in uh, supermarkets these days. They'll, they'll call it an artisan bread, and basically it's the same loaf, but they sprinkle some flour on top of it, and and that's what they've you know. Well, that's what, you know, I mean, the, the, the problem is that if you look at you know, factory-made artisan bread uses the same vocabulary as I do. Mm. And I think that part of the problem is how does the average person who's not, who's not familiar, I don't want to use the term well-educated, who's not familiar with artisan bread, how do they tell the difference between, you know, one of the companies that's making, you know, 2,000 loaves an hour and say handcrafted and hearth-baked and naturally leavened from the real thing? So I think that bakers have to do a lot of education to help that. Mm-hmm. Before we leave, Dan, uh, can you tell us, tell the audience, where they can find you online? Uh, where can they find you yeah, yeah. and learn more about Bread Alone? You can you can find the book in bookstores everywhere, hopefully. Uh, certainly Amazon and the big retailers. Uh, you can follow me on Dan Makes Bread. Uh, my personal website is danleader.com. Our Instagram at the bakery is a Bread Alone Bakery. And um, I will be posting about where I'll be touring with the book yes. on, on my Instagram and I'll be I'll be traveling for the next six weeks. Awesome. And I'm going to be in San Francisco so okay. hopefully I can meet you when I'm out there. I'd, well, you know what? I, I'd love to make it out there. Six. Yeah, okay. So it'll be out here on the West Coast. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Dan Leader, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And thank you. Daniel Leader's new book is titled Living Bread, Tradition and Innovation in Artisan Bread Making. And I wanted to add, since Daniel's audio did cut out there a little at the end, that his company's website is breadalone.com. 
And after Weston Perry's new single, be sure to check out the Sourdough Podcast website, where you can find an exclusive sourdough recipe from Daniel's new book, as well as my support button, where you can contribute any amount to help keep the lights on and to keep bringing you more episodes. Thanks for listening. Exactly what I'll do. Oh, who the hell am I kidding?